The front voice here, Idaho, and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Well, about as close as you're going to get to an emergency podcast this week because uh, we, we kind of held off uh, doing the podcast until Friday afternoon because there was some pretty big news this uh, this afternoon. Uh, Governor, Governor Brad Little laid out a plan to put some money back into K-12 right away. It's a bit formative and it's a bit unclear, but I think we can answer a lot of your questions about where the money's coming from and where it might go. We sure can. Kevin, this budget and revenue story was kind of developing all week, uh, but as you said, the latest and greatest... It came, to head today. it came to head on Friday. Yeah, the latest and greatest came to a head just moments ago. You were with the governor. What's the announcement? Where's the money coming from and how's it going to work? Well, the big announcement is that the, the governor wants to use $99 million in federal coronavirus stimulus money to backfill the K-12 budget. And if that number sounds familiar, it should, because back in the spring, Governor Little spelled out a plan to cut $99 million from the K-12 budget. And those cuts did go into effect right away in early July, as soon as the new budget year began. So what the governor wants to do here is take the federal stimulus dollars, the federal coronavirus stimulus dollars, and the best way to look at it is this is a dollar-for-dollar replacement of the money that was cut in the spring. It does not necessarily mean that the cuts are restored. It doesn't necessarily mean that the money is going to go back into programs and back into line items like the legislature laid it out in the spring. And yeah. you know, it's not going to exactly replace and, and reverse the cuts that Governor Little spelled out in the spring. So it gets a little bit complicated and it really kind of boils down to local control. Yeah, that was one of the, you were there, I watched the stream, but that was one of the issues where there was a considerable amount of discussion during the press conference. And then after the press conference, you got some more information about what exactly the $99 million could be used for. But basically, I think it's helpful to think of it in terms of discretionary funding. Sometimes you hear school leaders call that operations dollars, but discretionary money, right? The school districts right. will be able to choose. Right. And Marilyn Whitney, uh, State Superintendent Sherry Barr's uh, legislative liaison, used that exact phrase. She said, look at this as discretionary funding. So what it comes down to is 115 school districts and 60, 70 charter schools are going to get a share of this money. And they're going to be able to use that money really to address whatever needs they, they see on the ground uh, as a result of the coronavirus. So it's not a done deal yet. I, I think I need to backtrack and make that clear. The governor has a committee that is overseeing the way the state spends its uh, coronavirus aid money from right. the Fed. This $1.25 billion that the, uh, the state has received from the feds. That committee meets on Tuesday. Uh, the, that committee has pretty much gone along with everything the governor has wanted to do with uh, CARES Act money since the spring. So I don't envision uh, there being much of a hiccup from the, uh, the coronavirus uh, funding committee on Tuesday. That's the final official step that, that puts this into motion. Yeah, and I think you pointed out in today's article that uh, the governor's budget chief, Alex Adams, chairs that it's that CFAC group, but it's that committee that meets Tuesday, right? Right. And, you know, the, the governor and uh, Superintendent Ibarra 
and uh, Debbie Critchfield, the president of the state board, hailed this uh, plan on Friday. Uh, it's not a done deal, but they were certainly talking like it's uh, pretty much uh, all but a done deal. Yeah, and so I know that we'll be covering that and we'll watch that Tuesday to sort of uh, sure. dot those I's and, and, and cross um, those T's. Uh, yeah. But it, so in the $99 million and the revenue question had sort of been building all week, though, as you talked about in the article. It, it had been. And, you know, this, this was a wrinkle in the debate just because all of a sudden the governor laid out a plan to use federal uh, coronavirus uh, stimulus money. But as you wrote about earlier in the week, the state's tax revenues came in better than expected. You know, we're two months into the new budget year, but we're $69 million ahead. That, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, in tax collections on, on the first two months of the fiscal year. And that prompted a response that you wrote about on Wednesday from the Idaho Education Association saying, well, if we're ahead here, Let's reverse these $99 million in cuts. Let's use these robust state tax collections and offset and, and reverse those $99 million in cuts. Well, that's kind of a moot question now in the sense that what the governor wants to do and what will most likely happen, unless there's a hiccup next week, is the state is going to use this federal coronavirus stimulus money to do the same yeah. rough purpose, uh, you know, replacing the $99 million. Right. So yeah. Why are we hung up about where the money's going, and why can't we really answer with absolute certainty where the money's going? Again, the districts and the charters are going to get their share of the money. They do have to follow some federal guidelines in terms of how they spend the money, but they still have pretty wide discretion in how they're going to spend that money. Yeah, you got into it, and the governor discussed it during his press conference, but uh, I think some of the basics are uh, that they have to spend it before the end of the year, but the governor talked about you know, he anticipated one area where money could go would be to teachers or hiring teachers or hiring personnel, right? Right. That was an area that he really spotlighted. He said, you know, there, he's hearing schools who are having issues with uh, needing additional teachers. There's just an additional pressure because of the, the shift to hybrid learning or online learning. Uh, Plus, you've got schools that are seeing teachers that just didn't return to the classroom this year uh, out of health concerns or, you know. So you've got districts looking for teachers, a teacher shortage that we've, we've been writing about for years, intensifying this year because of the coronavirus. Right. So he's thinking that that may be an area where the money is spent. The first question I think a lot of people had, and the first question I had really at the press conference today was, well, what happens with the governor's recommendation to freeze teacher salaries, to freeze the latest installment in the career ladder to increase teacher pay, in this case, to increase pay for veteran teachers. Yeah. In essence, that freeze is still going to be in effect because this really doesn't exactly reverse the cuts that the governor laid out. And you can't exactly use the 20, you can't exactly use $26.6 million of federal money to replace the $26.6 million in teacher salary money that the governor froze in May. It just, it's not going to work that way. So if you're, it, yeah, teacher, it, if you're wondering if there's going to be a pay raise coming out of this, the short answer is we don't know. It's really going to be decided at the local level. Yeah. It's going to be a decision. Local districts can probably make a case to use money 
use this money for teacher pay. It is one-time money and schools are right in the middle of a contract year. So that complicates using this money for salaries. You know, perhaps uh, you might see some schools use some of this money for, for, for one-time bonuses, Right. Uh, reopen the contract to do something like that. But I think you'd probably still see school districts that are a little bit reluctant to, to use one-time money and, and put it into the, the salary schedule. So it's really confusing. And it's going to be something that I guess we're going to be watching here in the weeks and months to come exactly how does this money get spent and how does it offset some of the pressures that schools are experiencing because of the pandemic. Yeah, it sure does. We'll follow up on that. But yeah, you're exactly right about the teacher pay issue. And that is one of the hallmarks of our system in Idaho that, you know, the state sends out a certain amount of funding each year to school districts and charters for teacher pay. But then those schools and districts negotiated at the local level. And that, that's not new this year. That's not different. And as I think the governor pointed out, there's already contracts in place for this year. Um, but they would have wide latitude on how they could use discretionary money. And, you know, we don't want to get ahead of things, but, you know, conceivably you could see something like discussions over a one-time bonus because of, like you said, that reluctance to build one-time money into an ongoing expense like the salary schedule. Right. And, you know, this becomes such a dense conversation so quick. <laughs> I know. You know, school funding is a complicated issue anyway. You factor in that this money's coming from the federal government. There are some federal strings attached to it. This becomes a really complicated, really kind of gnarly issue right away. Uh, it was probably <laughs> one of the more confusing press conferences that I've been to yeah. in recent, uh, recent months. Um, after the press conference, uh, Betsy Russell from the Idaho Press and I had to basically huddle with the uh, the governor's education brain trust, you know, Greg Wilson from, from his staff, Alex Adams from the budget office, uh, folks from the state board, folks from the uh, state department of education, all there trying to figure out, figure out exactly <laughs> how is this money going to get spent? How is this money going to get dispersed? Uh, how does it tie back into what the governor talked about in the spring? I think we've got as, as good an answer as we can give you today about how that's going to play out. But this is definitely something we're going to watch closely and, and see how the money is spent. And that's not all. That's not the only thing that he that the governor announced today in terms of uh, funding to help offset the uh, the education impacts from the pandemic. He also announced a $50 million grant program that uh, parents will be able to apply for uh, and get some money to offset the cost of computers, or offset the cost of internet, offset the cost of uh, educational materials for kids who are working from home, kids who are you know, taking classes at home. It's, it's also unclear exactly how that's gonna play out. Uh, the State Board of Education is gonna have to write the guidelines for these applications. That application process will begin in October, but that's a big chunk of money, and that's going to go to you know maybe about thirty thousand kids across the state. So again, that's a that's a big program, and that's something that uh, we're already talking about here in the office. Uh, look for more follow up about that because I feel like uh, the news on Friday just barely scratched the surface. But uh, that's a lot of money, and that's a lot of money going to a lot of a lot of kids and a lot of parents and families around the state. So. Uh, definitely uh, got our work cut out for us uh, as we try to sort through that. Yeah, it is um, a lot of money. And I think you mentioned 30,000 students, a number that sticks in my head. I think that Idaho serves about 312 
thousand public school students K twelve, or at least maybe did last year. So that would be around maybe ten percent, um, just ballpark ten percent of the student population there. We'll continue right. to follow that for sure. Right, and and when the governor was asked about that, you know, is this enough? He quickly said, you know, look, you have a lot of kids already who are in class; they're already in school. They they won't necessarily uh, need this assistance. The idea is to take this $50 million, give it out on a need-based uh, uh, program. Details yet to be determined. So we'll be watching that really closely. And I think it just goes to a bigger issue that I think I'm probably going to want to take a closer look at here in the next few days. Uh, the governor really is hanging a lot of, uh, you know, a lot on this federal coronavirus stimulus money. He He went out of his way today to say that while a lot of states have had to cut education spending, the state of Idaho has actually increased education spending. But a lot of it comes down to these federal coronavirus dollars. A lot of it comes down to some coronavirus money that had already been allocated to the public schools, that had already been allocated uh, towards uh, safe reopening of schools. So I want to kind of crunch into the numbers a little bit and, and help explain where all that money went and how, you know, how it's going to be spent. And also bring up higher education, which uh, yeah. came up empty in today's uh, announcements. Uh, no new money for higher education, which is dealing with its own bunch of challenges pertaining to coronavirus. So a lot, there's a lot for us to dive into. And it feels like uh, the story Friday gives you, you know, the quick sense of what's happened. We got a lot to sort out here in the next few days and weeks to come. Yeah, that was quite the workout uh, for a Friday, Kevin. And like you said, we now have sort of some assignments to really dive into over the next few weeks. But I think this one is a good one uh, to check out the homepage. That was a lot of information and numbers coming at you. Uh, but www.idahoednews.org, it's going to be the top story up there on Friday afternoon. But just the real basics to keep in mind, it's $99 million. It's federal money. Uh, federal CARES Act relief money as opposed to state money. And think of it as discretionary money. Think of it along those terms. Yeah. Um, but yeah, head to the homepage and and check that out. But that was uh, a full day for you, Kevin. Yeah, that, that, we were expecting that it was going to be a pretty significant announcement. We were getting kind of signals that it was going to be a big deal. And, and it was, you know, and it raises a lot of questions moving forward. All right. Well, thanks for your coverage on that. But really, that was just one day's worth of news. Uh, we had a bunch of other stories this week. And so I do want to uh, highlight one more. All right. Well, let's switch gears here uh, for a minute, Kevin, because there's another huge topic that we want to get to. And that's the continued experience with schools reopening across the state. Another big newsy week this week, a number of school districts and charters went back on Tuesday after Labor Day, including the state's largest district, West Ada, which was not without its problems right off the bat on Tuesday. But let's get into reopening a little bit. Kevin, that was the subject of your analysis piece this week. That's the piece you do every Thursday, kind of taking a, a step back at a closer look at an issue. Uh, and you talked about how school reopening is one thing, but staying open is the hard part. What did you mean by that? Let's get into that piece. Well, it was what I was hearing as I was working on this piece. And the, the time element, the news hook here is that West Ada is going to reopen on Monday. Uh, they are going to, uh, 
they're going to bring back students, especially in the, the early grades that will be back full time. But even, you know, students all the way from first grade to 12th grade are going to be back at least on a part time schedule starting Monday. They're moving quickly. Yeah, it's very much a, a quick journey. Uh, they The first day of school was Tuesday this week after Labor Day. It was online. They had a lot of problems. But like you said, quickly gearing up with the news from Central District Health, pushing Ada County's classification for the basically the risk factor for the coronavirus from the red to the yellow. That, that, cha- that was the change that really um, set the groundwork for going back in person in in. Yeah in the largest school districts in the state, yeah. right? Yeah, there was, there was a lot of news packed into that Tuesday. Yeah. As you mentioned, uh, the rollout on Tuesday morning, the first day of online learning, was was really, really chaotic. Uh, Sandy Edge was, was tracking that story for us on Tuesday. Lots of computer problems, lots of frustrated parents. That's how Tuesday started in West Data. Come early afternoon, we got the announcement from the Central District Health Department, which we expected, no big surprise here, uh, CDH rolled back its uh, its classification for Ada County and said that at this point, Ada County is in the yellow alert, not the red alert. And right. with the yellow alert comes the recommendation that you can reopen schools. You can at least have hybrid learning in West Ada, in Boise, in CUNA. That's the recommendation now from CDH. And by the end of the day, Tuesday, West Ada was saying, yes, we're going to reopen, uh, we're ready to go, and we're going to start on Monday. So a very quick turnaround, uh, very busy Tuesday in West Ada, and a very quick turnaround. So we're going to see very very quickly how the reopen goes in West Ada. And we'll, we'll see pretty soon after that how the reopen goes in Boise and in Nampa. Both of those districts are going to uh, bring students back starting on September 21st. What I wanted to do with my story on Thursday, really looking at Boise and West Ada, is how ready are these schools to reopen? How ready are they to start to bring 65,000 students back into the classroom gradually? It's not all going to happen at once, especially in Boise. How ready are they? And what are we seeing elsewhere in the state? And what what are we seeing elsewhere in the state? And how does that inform what might what we might expect to see happen in, in West Ada and Boise? Yeah, that was a really good point because, you you know, we talked about the staggered calendar, not only for going back in person, but districts all over the state. You know, some school districts started going back in mid-August and went back in person. And you, so you talked about the experience that some of those districts had that did go back. I'm thinking about maybe Bonneville, maybe CUNA, and some of the things they encountered. And you said that uh, basically West Ada and Boise should expect to have to contend with a lot of those same issues and obstacles, right? I think the biggest thing that we can take away from Bonneville and CUNA and Mackey and really, you know, districts all over the state that have tried to reopen, whether it's hybrid or or full-time, there are going to be cases yeah. in West Ada and Boise and Nampa. That's inevitable. We, we know that's going to happen. The question is, what do you do with those cases? How do you respond to those cases? What sort of upheaval does that create in the schools? You know, you mentioned CUNA. Uh, CUNA went with uh, hybrid learning last week. They opened last week with the hybrid learning, going against the recommendations from Central District Health. Right. Um, And they did have two confirmed cases and a third uh, probable case that first week. 
Now, what Kina said was, well, these students showed up the first day, you know, again, on that alternating schedule. They didn't come back, and the, the district was able to avoid having to do, you know, mass quarantining or you know, sending whole classes back or, or closing schools. So they felt like they were able to isolate and, you know, uh, avoid, you know, real upheaval in the learning process. You know, the thing that is really going to be a job for these schools, and I hadn't really realized it until I, I talked to Andy Grover at the uh, Idaho Association of School Administrators. He said the biggest job and the reason that he says that the big challenge is to stay open is this contact tracing. When you have a case, you've identified a student, how do you figure out where the spread might be? How do you do contact tracing? And how do you go back a week or so and try to figure out every student that that other student talked to and, and do all of that contact tracing within the school? And what Grover told me was, you know, the health districts give schools guidance about how to do contact tracing, what the, what the procedure ought to be. But the work really falls to the school districts. They're, you know, the school employees are the ones who have to talk to the students, who have to do all this contact tracing, and it's a really time-consuming process. So I'm going to be very interested to see what kind of case numbers you get in West Ada and Boise and Napa and what kind of you know, work comes with that in terms of contact tracing to try to avoid you know, what we've seen in districts like Mackey, where the case numbers increased to the point where the district felt we've got to close, we've got to go to online only. You know, that's what school districts are going to try to avoid you know, at all costs, they're going to try to at least keep some sort of face-to-face -face component going. But at some point, you know, if the, the case numbers are, are too high and the spread is too great, you really have no choice but to go online. Yeah, the work you, that these districts have to do to avoid that is going to be very, very important to watch. Yeah, you talked about how Mackey was kind of one of the the hardest examples thus far early in the school year, you know, given that they started in person and had to shift dramatically to go online. One of the things I picked up on from your piece on Thursday, Kevin, you were talking about this extra work that's going on. And I know both of us talked this week with Lane McAnally, the president of the Idaho Education Association. And we talked a little bit about the contract tracing, which you, <clears throat> pardon me, which you just mentioned. One thing that Lane talked to both you and I about was the work of disinfecting classrooms and mm -hmm. how that's happening between periods, whether it's sanitizing desks or classroom materials or, you know, tools or projects or things of that nature. And, and so I think that the extra work that's going on is, is really, really interesting and in how that's falling to educators. And it's not just, you know, every year with back to school, it's a little, everybody's a little anxious and we're going back. But this year, there's so much more um, that's falling to the staff rather than just coming back and teaching and helping these kids catch up after what's essentially an unprecedented disruption to our education system. Um, but they're almost simultaneously being asked to monitor the hallways to ensure social distancing, to clean their classrooms and prep the next lesson all within like this three to seven minute time period depending on what school you're at or what district you're at or what the procedures are. And it, and the math just almost doesn't work out, right? Like there's so many new jobs and so much new work that we're learning about associated with 
going back to school, right? Right. It's it's a piece of a bigger challenge that I think the schools are going to face here. It's really a challenge of protocols, of trying to, you know, keep schools sanitary, keep schools uh, clean, uh, you know, kind of knock down the virus before it can establish itself in, in the classrooms, you know, maintain physical distancing, you know, keep kids six feet apart as much as possible. Those protocols, that's where a lot of the challenge is right now. And, and you mentioned what uh, Lane McAnally talked to both of us about, you know, teachers having to kind of take on that ex extra job of, you know, wiping down classrooms with Lysol and making sure that uh, you, you've done some, you know, some quick sanitation work, you know, not, not a deep clean, obviously, sure. in, in, in the span of a prep period or in between periods, but just that, you know, cleaning when you have a window you know, of time that you can clean. And, you know, it comes at a time, you know, as I talked to, to McAnally about it, um, it, it comes at a time when school teachers are really valuing the time that they do get to, yeah. to do prep work yeah. or to do collaboration work, because this is still a whole different learning environment. You know, you've got kids in school part of the time in most, in many districts, but also working online and working at home part of the time. So it's still a different learning setup. It's still a different learning regime. And you've got teachers still working their way through that. And collaboration is an important part of the process for teachers as they learn to do their job better. You know, learn from your your peers, you know, bounce things off of your peers and say, hey, this seems to be working in my classes. You know, what's your experience? Or, you know, I'm kind of struggling here. What do you, what do you, how are you getting past this problem? You know, there's only so much time in the day. And if the job of keeping the classrooms sanitary becomes paramount, and it's obviously an important component, it's obviously an important consideration, what falls by the wayside? Yeah. So that's kind of where, where I left it, um, you know, from my interview with, with McAnally, and I kind of worked that into the story. It's a protocol issue. It's really not as much of an issue by PPE, you know? I kind of went into this story wondering, okay, is Boise and West Ada, are these districts ready? Do they have enough hand sanitizer? Do they have enough masks? Do they have enough plexiglass shields? Do they have all of these, all of these components that you want to have in the classroom and all of these, you know, all of these components that the state is putting money into? You know, we've 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 written about how the state is putting money from the Federal CARES Act into PPE for schools. You know, Sherry Ibarra and the State Department of Education have gone around the state. You wrote about this a few weeks ago with, with big, you know, you know. Literally drums. Yeah. Sanitizer yeah. Uh, for schools to use. But in, you know, in spite of all of that, I, I was still wondering, are the schools adequately equipped? And what both Boise and West Ada said is, yes, they feel like they have enough PPE to do the job. And it's not just them saying that. We I also heard that from the School Boards Association, from IASA, uh, from, from IEA, talking to Lane McAnally. He said, at least for the Treasure Valley, he's hearing pretty good things in terms of PPE supply. So it's not really a PPE issue yeah. as much as it is a protocol issue. Well, and, and logistics and work. I mean, you kicked off the piece. Um, we, we call this maybe an anecdotal lead or a delayed lead in journalism lingo, but you kicked off the piece with the experience of a school nurse, I want to say she was at uh, Boise Elementary School, perhaps, 
Um, yeah, elementary. Yeah, she was looking to set up basically isolation rooms, uh, and she was asking if anybody could donate a baby monitor. Right? Tell me about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I got this email forwarded on to me, and it is from a nurse at White Pine Elementary in, in Boise. And what she was putting the word out for was, did anybody have a baby monitor that they could donate to the school, preferably one with a camera, so that if a student shows up with coronavirus symptoms and the school decides to isolate that student, you can monitor how that student is doing remotely without having to go into the room. And I thought that was a really... You know, when I when I heard about this, I was like, wow, that's that really kind of hits home, you know, what could be happening on the ground here as students come back to school. You know, you're you know, you know, a school show a student shows up at school with coronavirus symptoms. You, you don't know right away if that student is is positive for coronavirus or just, you know, you know, battling with any number of uh, of any it number could of be allergies. It, it, yeah, I mean, it could be it could be the coronavirus. It could be the common cold. It could be allergies. Yeah, it could be a lot of different things. But you've got a student showing symptoms, and you want to separate that student from classmates because you you want to avoid you know spread within the classroom, obviously. But you also want to isolate the students so that staff you know is protected as well. So you you have this. We're setting up isolation rooms and, you know, remotely watching these students, you know, while we try to figure out if the student needs to go home, if parents need to come pick, pick that student up. I thought it was just a really, you know, telling anecdote about what's, you know, what's going to be occurring and what probably is occurring right now in schools across the state is, you know, students show up. Sometimes they do show up with, with symptoms. Sometimes they do show up and test positive, as we've seen in CUNA and in Bonneville. Well, what do you do? You know, in Boise's case, it is really just a matter of isolation. They're not going to try to treat these students. They're just going to try to figure out if if students need to go home and and try to keep them separated from their classmates. So it's, you know, I thought it was just one way of illustrating the challenges that are facing schools. Yeah, I thought it was... You know, a really important piece, and it, it it's kind of what's everybody what's on everybody's minds right now, at least within this education sphere um, where we do our work. But it's really, I, I know there's a lot of frustration and inconsistency and conflicting information. Um, but as we dig into it, and, and this isn't a surprise, and we've known this all summer, and, and the details are just coming into place. But this is really. You know, within our education system, likely the challenge of our lifetimes, uh, at least of, of my lifetime, as far, as far as I've been able to observe and document within public education. Um, and, and I'm not, you know, it, I don't know. I, I just, um, it, it is difficult and it's so complicated. And I'm not, you know, trying to, you know, wave away the inconsistency and confusion and, and, and things like that. But it's so much is happening and changing all the time and people are being asked to take on different roles and things are different. Um, and, and even on a normal return to school, we've, we've covered return to school for what previous seven years at Idaho education yeah. news before there was a pandemic. There's always glitches and hiccups and it never goes quite right. And, and now the stakes are so much higher and there's so many more challenges and people are already sort of like what on edge already um, having to endure six months of this and just 
not knowing what's going to happen. And, and, and so I understand the, certainly the frustration uh, and we're just trying to document what, what's happening and what's it like out in the, in the real world, so to speak, or out in the field yeah. or out in the schools. And it's, it's not just one thing and it's super complicated, right? Right. And, you know, I think Lane McNally really encapsulated it really well when I talked to him on, on Wednesday, you know, here's the president of the IAA, which has, I believe, uh, you know, about 13,000 members around the state. I'm not exactly sure on the number, but, you know, it represents thousands of teachers across the state. Yeah. The first thing I wanted to ask him is, what are you hearing from your members? What are they talking about at this point where, where schools are open? You know, what are, what's the common theme that you're hearing from the field? And he said, you know, it's teachers are excited. They want to be back in the classroom. They know that this is the best place to teach kids, that this is the best environment for learning. This is the best environment for supporting kids. But they're apprehensive. Yeah. You know, they're, they don't know how this is going to work exactly. They don't know what to expect. And, you know, if that doesn't sum it up for everybody, I don't know what does. I think, you know, parents are probably feeling that same sort of mixed emotions uh, as they send kids back to school and, you know, as they get ready to send kids back to school in, in West Ada and Boise and Nampa. There is some excitement, but there's some apprehension. Yeah, I think that's as good a place really as any to leave off this week is with that message. I, I certainly got that from Lane and the people I've talked to, but whether you're a parent or a teacher or a principal or a superintendent, you know, these people are in these roles because they care, you know, they value it. They, the teachers, they, they miss their students. They want to be with their, their kids. They, this is a calling for them. They want to teach them. They miss that. They know their students are, you know, some may be going through hard times. Uh, and there's apprehension that goes along with that. But, you know, whether or not everybody's on the same page, it is obvious that, that parents, teachers, students, principals, superintendents, nurses, counselors, they all love their students and we're all dealing with something that nobody wanted to deal with right now. Right. Right. And, and we're, you know, we're dealing with it in real time, not knowing what it's going to look like from week to week, you know, and I think, you know, but that, that kind of goes to our job here. I yeah. mean, this is a very emotional time for, for teachers, for school administrators, for parents, for students, uh, so many mixed feelings, so much uncertainty. You know, our job, is to try to give you the best information, uh, the most you know, objective information, the best data, uh, the best state of what's what's happening in the schools and, and you know what's happening with with the virus. You know, so that we can you know have some knowledge base yeah. to look at as we sort through all of our emotions in this. So, you know, that's where we are right now, and we're, what we'll continue to do through this you know historic and unusual school year. Yeah, that that's the project before us right now. I, I wanted that was quite a, a show and a lot to get to, and, and I appreciate everybody hanging on. We have much more at the homepage. If you haven't checked that out in a couple of days, www.idahoednews.org. Pardon me, idahoednews.org. I've only worked there almost yeah, eight yeah, years. Right. It's always an important thing when we're trying to, <laughs> when we're trying to pump up traffic. Hello, Cleveland. Um, but yeah. Um, <laughs> So, so check that out. I did have one other story this week you may be interested in. Uh, U.S. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos sent a letter to 
school chiefs in each of the states saying, expect standardized testing this year. It'll be different from last year. There was a waiver due to the the virus. Uh, So Idaho education officials are gearing up to administer standardized tests. That really won't happen uh, in terms of these federal mandated tests until March. But keep an eye out for that. A lot of good stuff on the homepage, which again is www.idahoednews.org. You can follow us on Twitter, at Idaho Ed News. We tweet links uh, to our biggest story there. But thanks so much for joining us. We always have a lot of fun on the Extra Credit Podcast, breaking down this ever so complicated intersection of education policy and education politics. Good news, we will both be back next week uh, for another brand new edition of Extra Credit. But until then, I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Stay safe and have a good week.